Have you been feeling stuck, exhausted, and finding yourself living as a passenger in your own life? By giving away so much of your energy and power to everyone and everything around you. But you? Well, you are not alone. My name is Dr. Valérie Johnston Dugamin, osteopath, and I have been there too. After being burned out, exhausted, I decided to take control of my life and get back into my driver's seat. It wasn't easy though, but I did it. And you can do it too. In this podcast, I will share stories, invite guest speakers, and provide insight and tips on how to turn your life around and move back into your driver's seat. My guest today is Michael Amandolia. He is a commercial and editorial photographer and videographer with three decades experience working with individuals, companies, organizations, and magazines, making photographic portraits and commercial images that tell the story. The emotional impact to the viewer is always Michael's mission. In today's conversation, it's about the life lesson of a dream job. Thank you, and welcome, Michael, to the Driver's Seat Club. My pleasure, Valerie. Thank you. And today you're going to talk about you living as a creative life as a photographer and you're going to talk about the story and the experience behind it and how you came to become a photographer. Yeah, sure. I started this whole career that now is probably almost you know 35 or so years in the making. It all started probably the last year of high school where I was really contemplating what sort of job I was going to do. I got the sense that after doing some work experience where I really didn't enjoy the experience, it wasn't something that was of interest to me. It was something my father introduced to me. He sort of thought that could be good for me. And it was just a, a miserable week that I spent in work experience. I thought, gee, I better choose something that I really love because I'm going to have to do this for a long time, work, and I want to do something that I'd be really interested in. So I was interested in tennis at the time. I wanted to be a tennis coach, actually. Okay. But then I got thinking, well, look, the guys on the side of the tennis court photographing the game, you know, they can't be too difficult to do. So I started to explore the idea of that. And I was given a camera for Christmas. My father gave me a camera for Christmas, bought me a camera, a Pentax camera. And I started taking photographs and in the process... I was taught a little about how to set up a dark room so I could take photographs, process the film and print the images in a little makeshift dark room that we set up in the laundry at home. Eventually, my father would use the outside shed that wasn't being used anymore. He set up a little dark room for me out there. A little bit later, I got a telephoto lens. and I started photographing for the school magazine, the sports events, the swimming carnival, the football games, and they got published in what was a very rough and ready sort of reproduction, almost like photostat style. But these photographs I was able to use as an example of my work when I went to see, I made an appointment to go and have an interview with picture editor at the Sydney Morning Herald and at News Limited, my cousin 
knew someone there. And so I went and spoke to both those gentlemen saying I really wanted to be a newspaper photographer. Okay. How old were you at that time? I would have been 18 at the time, probably early 18, late 17 or so. And I got these interviews. In the process, I guess I was put on the list of possible cadets, I guess, cadet photographer. I'd won a, a little school's photographic competition, which was helpful. And I built up this portfolio. My parents sometimes would take me on the weekends to a sporting event where I would photograph from the spectators side of the fence. And I built up these photographs, which today are pretty terrible, actually, but they would have shown some sort of promise, I guess, as someone who's able to photograph events. And I was very interested in sport at the time. So I decided that I wanted to be a press photographer. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a newspaper photographer. And I was going to pursue that to whatever lengths was required. I wasn't too sure what sort of job I would get. I didn't think my HSC mark, my high school certificate mark, would be very good. So I thought I'll get a job before I even leave school. So I went and approached George's camera store to see whether it was possible to get a job there as soon as I left school. So as it turned out, I finished my last exam for the HSC on the Friday, and I'd organized to start on the Monday. First thing, nine o'clock on Monday, and I worked at George's camera store for six months. What did you do there? I was basically just selling cameras. I was almost sacked after about two, three months because I wasn't selling enough cameras. I was telling everybody about the cameras, but I wasn't selling anything. So they sent me up to the duty-free section and I got to sell quite a lot of cameras. People come in there to buy a camera because they're about to go overseas. So luckily I was able to hold on long enough to my job because I then suddenly became one of the guys selling the most amount of cameras. I think it was a bit of a wake-up call to me as well when the boss said he was going to sack me because I hadn't sold enough photography equipment. Yes. To cut a long story short, I ended up um, getting a call from News Limited. Did I want to start in the next week or so at News Limited as a copy boy, which is basically a, an errand boy, a, a guy who delivers the newspapers, gets food for the photographers and things like that, but with the idea that I might at some time in the future get a cadetship, and the cadetship being a traineeship, I just said straight away, yes. And of course, my pay packet went down quite considerably, almost halved, but I was pursuing what I wanted to do. Wow. I got this cadetship. I went to start working at News Limited, and suddenly now I'm mixing with the Ita Butros of the journalism world. I'm delivering her newspapers. Yes. So 14 months later, and very frustrated because I want to get out there and take photographs, I finally get a cadetship. I'm actually completely in the building. I've got this traineeship for three years. I'll spend the next three years in the darkroom most of the time, but I'm building up my skills and knowledge so that when I do get the opportunity to take a photograph for the newspaper, I'll be well and truly prepared. I had to bear out another three years of receiving photos from overseas, sending photographs around Australia through the darkroom and the processing room, the pictogram room, they called it. And eventually I got to be a staff photographer after three years at the Sunday Telegraph. And then it went on to be the Daily Telegraph and then went on to be the Australian. So to cut a long story short, I spent 15 years working at News Limited, working across all the areas. It was then after, I think it was in 1997, the beginning of 1997, I started to work as a freelance photographer and mainly working for international publications. 
So that's me up to the point of being a freelance photographer, which I've now been for 24 years as an independent freelance photographer, mainly working over those years for magazines. That was my main job. More recently, I'm now working for organizations, for companies, corporate sort of profile portraits and photographs for the website, small businesses or some large organization. All the things I did editorially for magazines, I sort of do, but with a brand in mind for small businesses and companies. Compared to when you started, what is your style now of photography? When I was working in journalism, first of all, at the newspaper, it was very much a raw photojournalism style. The story is really gritty, difficult circumstance. I would photograph it that way. Yes. Same when it came to magazine photography, it was a similar thing. If I was doing a portrait of, a, say, a very glamorous star, I would photograph them with studio lights. I was telling a story in these photographs. But if it was a story about the drought, well, it could be as bad as the farmer having to shoot kangaroos that were stuck in the mud that was caused by this sort of drought circumstances. Okay. You know, whatever was required to tell the story, it's all about the subject. It's all about making the viewer feel and be informed by those images that are accompanied by words. These days, it's very much about how can I make the client, I guess, in its best profile? It's what's the best aspects for the client in telling the story of their brand? Every company, organization has a brand. You could almost say it's a little bit like marketing advertising these days. Okay. It's one of those natural evolutions. Sadly, for our profession as journalists, the outlets for it are becoming less and less and less. And and I think also it's primarily a there's very few good outlets to tell stories and earn an income from doing that. And I think it's a young man's sort of game as well. Okay. I had those opportunities when I was younger, and there's new people with that same passion that are doing that for the magazines and newspapers these days. I mean, I could pursue those outlets still today, but I think it's a natural progression for me to do something a bit different. I'm getting the opportunity to do some work in that realm of photojournalism when I'm working with the Fred Hollows Foundation. Ah, wow. And before we go into the Fred Hollow Foundation, because that sounds very interesting, just take me back again of when you were young and you got very passionate about photography. Was it really hard for you to get into the industry, but also the work that you did? Was it a lot of sacrifices until you get to a stage when you became a freelancer? Yeah, well, I think when you have a, an occupation that's sort of, a, you know, photographer in the television industry or film industry, you're a musician. It's one of those sort of occupations that can be all encompassing. I don't find it that much of a sacrifice. There are times where I really wanted to be somewhere else. If it wasn't what I wanted to do, it's what I knew I needed to do to stay in the game, to still be a working photographer. So yeah, in the beginning, I would have to work, for example, on weekends, on Christmas Day. I would have to, I would miss friends' birthday parties or family events and things like that. Sometimes I was upset by that. I, you know, I just I really wanted to be somewhere else. Majority of the time, I knew that it was going to take a lot of dedication on my part 
Also, it's not a matter of like, you know, nine to five. One has to really absorb themselves. It's almost like uh, a vocation rather than a than necessarily just a job. It's something that you just can't help but do and something that you really doing it at the time, you're sort of considering it and thinking about it and all that sort of stuff. Which brings me back to the other element of what I loved about photography. I'd still do. Even if I had to choose another career tomorrow, I could start all over again. I would still choose exactly the same job because it has been the most rewarding as far as personal development. You know, I started as quite a shy sort of, more so lacking in confidence. And I think I built my confidence over that time by, by proving myself, not only to myself, but also to my editors that I worked with. Yeah. And so through all of that, I got to meet people, go to events, see the world firsthand, virtually across the whole spectrum of life. You know, what would uh, require me to go to a Islamic prayer session? It's only that I had a story to do about that. And I had to go and meet the imam and build a relationship so that he would allow me to photograph the Friday prayers and then go with the worshippers afterwards. It's just one little example of things that I wouldn't have had an opportunity to do if it wasn't for being a journalism photographer. Wow, it sounds so rewarding, though, the experience that you went through. Even if all the photographs that I took, this is something that I remember the great Philip Jones Griffith said, like even if I was to lose all the photographs that I'd ever taken, they were all just lost in a fire or something. Yes. I still have all of those experiences. By having the camera, by having the mission to get these pictures, it motivates you to seek out things that you would never normally do otherwise. So I've got all those life experiences that makes me who I am today, I guess. Yes, thinking about people who do a job that uh, they don't like, they probably don't know what they're missing because you sound very passionate about your work and about finding that gift that uh, allow you to live and also to enjoy, but also to make a living of it. Yeah, I do feel very fortunate. It's to be a lot tougher for a young person today to do the same thing. I mean, they would be able to achieve it. There's less outlets for it today, but there are other ways of which to do it. And I'm watching and being inspired by, you know, young people today trying to work in the journalism photography world, but they have to do it in a different sort of fashion. And when you've got these sorts of jobs, really, it is one of those sort of things where only the most um, dedicated sort of can survive in it. Wow. I mean, I have to remain very dedicated to the job, but considering and building up my skills and relearning and... Yes, absolutely. And then you were saying that you started to work with the Holo Foundation. So how did that started? Well, I was really fortunate. In 1992, I was given the assignment to go with a journalist from the Daily Telegraph, and there was a couple of TV crews as well, to Hanoi, uh, Vietnam, with Fred Hollows and a small team that were to teach the local eye surgeons this intraocular modern cataract surgery. Yes. But they didn't have those skills at the time. And Fred Hollows was renowned for his work with Indigenous communities, and he'd started working with the World Health Organization on issues to do with cataract blindness and to do with ophthalmology. He had contracted cancer and he'd survived a lot longer than his doctors had suggested. And 
he'd actually only been given a very small amount of time to live, but he'd outlived. You know, he'd lived three years longer than they expected he to do. And so he'd set up this little team to go to Vietnam. And so they thought he could even die on the trip. It was unknown as to whether he would even survive the trip. His doctor had given him the go-ahead, but it was really more out of support for his cause, I guess, than anything. So anyway, uh, I got to make these pictures and we sent them back to Australia. It was to become the beginning of the Fred Hollows Foundation. A week after we returned from the trip, I made, while I was on that trip, what has become a very famous photograph of Fred with Tran Van Jupp, young seven or so year old boy who he managed to restore his sight in one of his eyes that was badly damaged. And that's gone on to become almost like the brand image of the Fred Hollows Foundation for the last coming up to 30 years. Yes. So this involvement, mainly the last 30 years, that the free use, the without charge use of my photographs that I made at that time. But in the last nine or so years, I've managed to work directly with the Fred Hollows Foundation and I've been doing a lot of the appeal stories and stories we would do for media and working with the journalists from various publications. So that's been really rewarding the last nine years where I've got to carry on the work that I started 30 years ago. I got to spend a lot of time with the Nepalese eye doctor, Dr. Sanduk Ruit, who, if you were to say that Fred had a protege, it's not exactly right, but if you were to say that, that Dr. Ruit was the a protege of sorts of Fred, well, certainly a great friend of his, and Fred encouraged him a lot. And yet Dr. Sanduk Ruit has gone on to be one of the great ophthalmologists of remote on-location surgery and delivering the eye care sight restoration to like 1,000 people over the course of five days. He's revolutionised that in Nepal and working in all the regional areas and parts of Africa and everything. So I was first introduced to him with Fred Hollows 30 years ago. He'd invited me to a number of eye camps in Tibet, in North Korea. It was through that and then the connection back with the Fred Hollows Foundation that I've had you know, a long-term, I guess my biggest body of work would be on blindness prevention. And traveling with the Fred Hollow Foundation, because by the time then you had a family, so how did you manage being away and having, I suppose you have kids and your wife, how did you manage the distance? Well, I probably only travel about three or four times a year. On an exceptional year, it might be five times, perhaps. My wife really supports the work I'm doing. She works at the Asylum Seekers Centre herself. She's interested in international development. So I'm very supportive from my wife. And, you know, when I return from one of these trips for two weeks or three weeks with the Fred Hollis Foundation, my children, who are now 13 and 11, I'll get these wonderful welcome back posters and letters and things that they'll write as I come back after being away. As much as I love to head off and do something, I'm just as thrilled to be back home. Yes. Yeah, that's not such an issue. And my wife's, when we first got married, I was probably traveling at that stage quite a lot. I was traveling a lot more than I do these days. Yeah, she copes with it. Uh, It's difficult. But the good thing about these days is I virtually, doesn't matter if I'm in Ethiopia or some remote spot of Ethiopia, it's usually enough Wi-Fi to make a telephone call or to do a FaceTime. I'm forever FaceTiming from wherever I am. And uh, that's the great thing about today. 
modern communications. Oh, well, that's very amazing, Michael. And you were saying that uh, you only started to work with the Fred Holo nine years ago. Is it true? I had the association has gone over through my photographs they've been using for marketing and communication purposes as the organization has grown from nothing. When Fred first went to Vietnam, as I say, a week later, they officially started the Fred Hollows Foundation with zero funds. It's grown over 30 years now, well, coming up to 30 years now, to now being, you know, spending something like, if you go to the annual uh, reports, it'll tell you that it's like 80 odd million dollars is allocated to projects all over the world every year by the Fred Hollows Foundation. It's really become a huge international, ophthalmic international organization. So the last 10 years, while it's been at that sort of status, well, I've had the opportunity to work with the organization. I mean, I'm sort of amply qualified considering that um, some of my work with Dr. Rui has been awarded World Press Photo Awards, and I've had a lot to do with blindness prevention through the work I've done with Dr. Sandik Ruit, Nepalese eye surgeon. So yeah, about nine years ago, I was just inquiring about one of my Nepalese colleagues and one of the guys in the communications department said, oh, Michael, you know, why don't you come in and see us because we might have a few good opportunities for you. So today, nine years later, you know, I'm working directly with the Fred Hollows Foundation and with what is now called the Creative Agency where we're creating photographs for marketing, for advertising, for storytelling. They'll do four appeal uh, campaigns every year. And not all of them I'm doing the photography for, but at least for a couple of them, I will be doing the photography and sometimes the video for projects where we're working with a News Limited or we're working with Fairfax or what is now Channel 9 uh, to complete a story that will be used for editorial purposes. And all of it's kept in the archive for the Fred Hollows Foundation that it's giving to its partner organizations all over the world now. So there's offices for the Fred Hollows Foundation now in Dubai, London, New York, Hong Kong. Yes. Really quite a large organization now. So as a small part of that, the creative agency is able to now, all the material that we create is used across the planet for its communication purposes. And sort of one of those examples is when you become big, you can become even more effective. Yes. What an amazing journey, though, that you have with the Fred Holo Foundation. Yeah, I've been so fortunate to have that outlet because there's very few good creative outlets in journalism photography. I wouldn't call this necessarily purely journalism. You know, sometimes we're making photographs that will work in a magazine or will work in a campaign. Not only is it sort of just pure documentary, which most of the story will be pure documentary, but I'll then make a few portraits where we can see that we're in Africa. A lot of the surgery is done and you wouldn't know what country in the world you're in. Wow. Yeah. So we, we'll follow the patient from where they live in a small thatched hut in a rural part of um, you know Africa or Asia or wherever. Yeah, what a great job. Yeah, well, it is a great job. It's one of those things that I've spent a lot of time working at being effective at. It's not something that can just be given to anybody. And uh, I know a lot of people feel as though they could just pull it off. But a lot of the time, it's a little bit like a police officer who has got so much experience, he can sort of read the subject. He can read that 
body language of that character. It's a little bit like, you know, with Me Too, I can now read a situation and know what to do, whether it's sensitivity or whether it's creatively to make sure that things work for us in the field in often sometimes very difficult circumstances. Yes. Oh, that's fantastic. And my call before, because you said you have two daughters. So for them, what about guiding them to find a job that they're passionate about? Are you talking to them about this type of things? They often say that, you know, the biggest lesson is just simply living it out yourself and others can just, you know, they can notice what you're doing. I am talking to them a lot about finding something that you just absolutely love to do. And I'm always emphasizing that. Of course, there's some practicalities involved in some respects, but I do feel as though whatever you were to put your mind to, especially international opportunities based in whatever part of the world you can be. And I noticed there are some of the great um, motivational speakers and whatever, you know, they live in Bali. They don't live in New York or whatever. So you really can, for some passions, be based in the most remote of places, as long as you've got a good internet set up. I'm noticing at the moment a friend of mine who's editing photographs from the tennis from his home in Sydney and distributing the pictures all over the world for uh, Associated Press. So like anything's possible these days. In answering your question, I'm so sorry, it was a long way of saying that, yeah, absolutely. I not only encourage my own daughters, but also, you know, anyone I speak to, I really think that if you've got a block, then you've got to just find out what really resonates with you. And I think you're likely to put that extra energy into it. And it could be for example, making money. That could be your thing. You just want to make money. So, you know, then you'll choose a profession where that's more likely to reap that sort of reward because maybe your passion is antique clocks or whatever. You know, you want to purchase a special home. Then you'll be motivated to do whatever it takes to do that, to get that thing that you are most passionate about. Yes, because as I was saying before, so many people, you hear them saying that they don't like their job, they're just doing it for the money, but they don't like it. As you said, if you want to do it for the money, that's okay. But if you do it for the money and you don't like it, maybe try to find something that inspires you and resonate better with you. But the other thing is about attitude and it's like mindset. For example, if you come from a perspective of gratitude, then you might have a different perspective on the occupation you already have. Yes. I could also think that way too. I could think, well, I've done a lot of this stuff before. You know, well, I'm sort of in some respects, I could be repeating myself. But if I come from a perspective of gratitude, then I'm thankful for what I have. And so I think, well, what's my motivation here? I think if you can find your motivation, then you'll be energized to do whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm always talking about that with, say, photographers on the street or if I'm teaching someone about photography. What's your motivation? Like, if you get that in check, if you can know what that is, then you'll be motivated to do whatever it takes to get a great image, for example. I mean, I can only really talk more about photography than anything else. It'd be the same for most professions, I'd say. Wow. And uh, just because we are on the driver's seat club, so would you say that at an early age, you were already in the driver's seat of your life because knowing what was your passion and what you wanted to do, and even now you keep on doing it? Yeah, am I always in the driver's seat? I can't always say that I'm in the driver's seat and I have control. I can't say that that's always the case. 
I can't say that I'm always in the driver's seat. It's become a bit more so once you're a freelance. Like I've been a freelance for 24 years now. So I'm a bit more in the driver's seat rather than necessarily, you know, working for a particular company because there's a lot of dynamics that perhaps within a an office structure might require a different attitude. You're not necessarily in the driver's seat. Yes. But I do think that if it's not necessarily your occupation, it might be how you spend your time other than your occupation. For example, there's an incredible example of that in photography. There's a photographer called Sam Ferris who is doing this incredible street photography, which a little short documentary was just made of him recently. Well, he has a nine-to-five job. He has a regular occupation. Yes. And any opportunity he can get to photograph on the streets of Sydney other than his job, whenever he gets a chance first thing in the morning before he gets to work or after work, once he's finished, he'll get in the street. So he's a guy who isn't living his passion as far as his earning income is concerned, but in his spare time, he's creating this amazing street photography work. That's just an example of just balancing that. Yes, that sounds so amazing. Well, thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate that you took the time to participate and uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you, Valerie, for looking after my uh, sort of sometimes problematic back through years of carrying heavy camera gear. You're welcome. Thank you very much for being my sort of back maintenance. It's a pleasure. It was so great having you on the Driver's Seat Club today. Thank you again, Michael. My pleasure. All the best, Valerie. Thanks. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned and subscribe to the Driver's Seat Club. Until next time, have a powerful day.